Hello, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, August the 15th. I hope that you and yours are doing well. You know, we are drawing to a close this study of this amazing epistle of Christian life of liberty, this study that we've been in of Hebrews. And the author of the letter has reviewed the, the exciting facts about Christian faith. And now in this 12th chapter, they come to some very practical exhortations that follow the presentation that they've made. And what they have to say is, never give up. You've started right, they say. that you, you started right, so hang on. Don't give up. And it's all summarized in one verse. And they say to these Christians then, and, and to us now in Hebrews 12, verse 3, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that is the problem, isn't it? It's our tendency to grow weary and to be discouraged, apathetic, to, to slack off, to get disinterested and, and to live from day to day without much concern whether we're running the race of faith well or, or not. And, and this is the problem that they had, and it's the problem that we face as well. And so this chapter stresses one great fact, that the Christian life was never intended to be a picnic. It is bound to be rough the writer says, because it was rough for Jesus. Consider him, the writer says, who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. If we think it's hard living with the neighbors we live with or, or working for the boss we work for or living with the mother-in-law or the son-in-law that we have to put up with, well, then I would suggest we review again the conditions that Jesus faced in his time here on earth. He had to constantly endure the stubbornness of men, the obstinate attitude with which they refused to believe what he said. It was even true of his own disciples. How many times he had to rebuke them for being small in faith and even for putting stumbling blocks in the path of those who tried to come to him. Again and again, he endured contradiction of sinners against himself. Now that is what the Christian life will be like, and, and we need to face it, right? We have to face it. Jesus had to endure it, clear to the end. He, he reminded us that the servant is not greater than the master. If the world persecuted him, hey, it's going to persecute us. And if it, and if it kept its, his word, and it will keep our word as well. And so the rest of the chapter enlarges on this fact that the Christian life will include times of hardship and trials. And in this chapter, there are three reasons why these difficulties, disappointments, and heartbreaks must come to us. First of all, Trials make known to us the, dis the discipline of love. They reveal to us the discipline of love. Secondly, they allow opportunity for the demonstration of the adequacy of Christ. And then thirdly, they expose to us the mark of truth. So first, there's a passage on the discipline of love. Reading Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. God disciplines his children, the subtext. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make, make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. 
Endure hardship and discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So to these harassed, persecuted Christians, tempted as we often are with discouragement, the writer of Hebrews says, hey, do not look at the dark side. Look at the bright side. There is something good about discipline. Well, what's good about discipline? Well, first of all, it could be worse. That is always encouraging, is it not? The writer reminds him, we've not resisted yet to the point of of shedding our own blood. God has spared us what others have had to face. We should be grateful for that, for even Jesus was not spared of this. Romans 8, 32 reminds us, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Though we may have it rough, it has not been as rough as it could have been. When Jeremiah began to complain to the Lord about his problems, the Lord said to him, If you have been running with the footmen and you find it difficult, what are you going to do when you compete with the horses? And if you fall down and you are in a safe land, what will you do in the day of swell of the swelling of Jordan? So God reminds us that even though trials come, they could always be worse. Secondly, hardships prove our son and daughtership. Every kid, every kid knows that the father does not discipline the neighbor children. He doesn't discipline the neighborhood kids. He disciplines you. And the reason is because you are his son or daughter. God does not discipline the children of darkness either. He disciplines his own. Therefore, if we have discipline, if we are going through struggles and problems, thank, then thank God. Even our earthly fathers, the author points out of Hebrews, we gave them respect during times of discipline. Chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. You see, what God sends is exactly what we need. He is never wrong. God loves us and sends exactly what we need. That is the argument here. And there is this definition of a Christian, one who is completely fearless, continually cheerful, and constantly in trouble. This is exactly what the passage describes. God does not ask us to rejoice in the trouble, but in what the trouble does for us. He is not expecting us to just pick up a smile and staple it or screw it onto our face and go around saying, hallelujah, it hurts. No, as, as the writer says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But God is asking us to rejoice. Nevertheless, not saying hallelujah, it hurts, but hallelujah, it helps. Because he points out later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we have to notice that last part. It is possible to go through trials and never have them do a thing for us because we complain all the time. Trials never do anything for us if we are always complaining and griping. That's the point. Now, it is difficult to believe that God sends these things, yet all of Scripture is, is, is to this point. It points this out. Perhaps we say, well, the devil sends them. Well, no, God sends them. Maybe using Satan, perhaps, but if, if we have never looked far enough if we look only at the immediate instrument, the immediate thing causing 
the pain, the strife. We must, we have to lift our eyes to the one behind it all and see that God sends things so that they come for our blessing and we are to rejoice in that. That's hard. That's a holy God choosing to do something, to be quite frank, that I would not do. Thank goodness he is God and I am not, and neither are you. Remember, there is no such thing as weak-kneed Christianity. Jesus builds strong knees through prayer. We say we have had to take one step back after another, that it, at times it seems hidden forces are, are ranged against us, that life has played us a dirty trick. But why should any of these things keep us from, from bobbing back up? Look at who is in front of us. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Isaiah 59, 19. The gospel has other words for other days, but the word today is stay in there, persevere, show your mettle, hang tough, strike a blow for Christ in spite of everything. Because if we give in now, we may lose far more than we realize. But if we stick with it and with God, there's everything to gain. So now we have to look at the second reason why trials come. So that they, they provide an opportunity to demonstrate the adequacy in Christ. Picking up chapter 12, verse, um, verse 12. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no, no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the eldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. So here the writer summarizes the practical results of trials in our life. They make possible the demonstration of a new kind of living, which is the, what the world is looking for. The world is not at all impressed with Christians who stop doing something the world is doing. But they are tremendously impressed with Christians who have started living the kind of life the world cannot live. That stops people in their tracks, and that is the life that Jesus is setting before us here. First of all, it starts with correction. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, a different translation says, and make straight paths for your feet. That is, if we keep on going the way we are going, it will only get worse. That which is lame will be put out of joint. But stop it, the writer says. Strengthen these things these things. Stop being so weak. Stop being so anxious, so worried. How will the world get the impression that Jesus is the victor if they look at us and we're always in defeat? Strengthen these things, they say, and learn how to live in peace with our neighbor. Strive for peace with all, with all humanity. And above all, follow after or seek after that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, we can't forget that holiness is the exact Greek word that is also translated in this letter as sanctification. And we saw before that the word sanctify really means to put to its proper use. So when a man or woman is believing that Jesus lives in them and gives them everything that they need for every minute, then they are being put to the proper use. They are being sanctified. We are being sanctified. 
the use for which God intended all of humanity to be sanctified. This is holiness, that sense of dependence and availability to God. This is what makes the world sit up and take notice as they see Christian men and women living the kind of life that is always adequate for every circumstance. That is the holiness without which no man can see the Lord. The second phrase has to do with our concern for others. See to it that no one failed to obtain the grace of God. We, we are not to live our lives to ourselves. Others are looking to us, and we have a responsibility to them. The writer points out two things that will stop the grace of God in any person's life. Bitterness and flippancy. Do not let a root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. Bitterness is always wrong. It is never justified. No matter how justified the cause of bitterness may be, to have a bitter attitude as a Christian is always wrong because resentment, envy, and bitterness are always of my flesh. The trouble is they are so highly contagious. We think that the Delta variant of COVID-19 is highly contagious. You just drop a little bitterness into a group and watch it go. If one person is bitter and continues in an unforgiving, bitter spirit, others are infected by this and it spreads and affects many. And by the way, and I say this in love because I am always saying this to myself. If you are thinking to yourself, you know, the people I'm around, they're always the problem. Then, my friend, you are probably the one that is bitter. If everyone is always at fault in every situation you encounter but you, then you are probably the bitter one. And folks are probably just too scared to tell you. I say that in love because I am as guilty of that as anybody. The other thing that will stop grace is flippancy. In other words, taking things of the Spirit lightly, as Esau did. And this was the example given to us in the text. He's the great example, right? Remember how Esau sold his birthright for a mess of soup. He came in from the field hungry, saw Jacob cooking a, red, a mess of red lentils. Esau saw the red lentils in the pot and said to Jacob, Give that red to this red, pointing it to his own beard. It's one of the few puns by the way, that's recorded in Scripture. And by that act, he lost his birthright, not because he wasn't some bad punster, but because he took the things of the Spirit lightly. The birthright had to do with the promise given to Abraham concerning the coming of a seed that would set men free from self. To despise it, as Esau did, is to say that the things that God offers to do for man are not important at all. And as a Christian, as a believer, are we in danger of despising our birthright as Esau did by saying, basically, I haven't got time for these things. I'm too busy. I haven't got time to concern myself with studying scriptures or walking with Jesus. Unfortunately, this causes a terrible reaction. And as in the case of Esau, a hardness of his heart sets in. And when the moment of truth dawns, it's going to be too late. When it says here he desired to inherit the blessing later but was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears, we can't misunderstand that. That does not mean that he tried to repent in his own heart, 
but could not. The repentance he sought was not his own, but his father's. Repentance means a change of mind. But when he came back to his father later and said, now, father, I'd like to have my birthright. His father said, it's too late, son. You sold it for a mess of beans and it belongs to your brother. Esau wept bitterly and tried to change his father's mind, but his father could not change his mind. It was too late. You see, he wasn't being repentant of himself. He wanted to be repentant of what his father had done, his actions, basically not liking the answer he got. So here then is the ministry that we, we are to have, to have a life in ourselves that's characterized by this display of that holiness, that sanctification, that proper use of our humanity that makes God visible in us. And then to manifest it in a deep concern for the well-being of others. That no one else miss the grace of God. That is the ministry. But what's the motive? Okay. So that we have to look. We keep looking. Chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. To a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word could be spoken to them because they could not bear what, it, what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain that must be stoned to death, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So in that, in that story there, we find the motive. How can we carry on a ministry like this that's, that's just been described? Not by being driven by fear not by the law which demands on us do this or else, not self-effort, not by gritted teeth and clenched fists and a determination that we're going to serve God. That won't do it. We have seen throughout the letter, this letter, if we serve because we are afraid, we will lose something from God, something from God that frightens us as the law frightened Israel in the scene at Mount Sinai. But it is not fear that is our motive. It is fullness. It is what God has given to us. We have come, the writer says, not to this Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, the place of grace, and to the new Jerusalem, the city of the living God. This is another term for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We have come under a new government, under new management, and to, new, and to angels. In the first of this letter, we're told that angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to those who are to be heirs of salvation. In other words, Christians, believers. Angels are here to help us when we need it. They, they are part of the resource and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This is the church. Those who are born in Jesus, part of the firstborn of God, sharing his life with our names, written in, in heaven. In other words, the heavenly calling. And, and to the universal judge, to God who is judge of all men, whether they are believers or not. You see, all humanity is on the same basis because they stand alike before a holy God. And to the spirits of just men made perfect. 
Well, who are these? Well, they're the Old Testament saints that we read about in chapter 11, men and women of God who lived in the days when the promise was given before the cross, who looked forward by faith and who are waiting now for us and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the new arrangement. A mediator is not someone up in heaven somewhere in some distant reach, some distant place in space. He is the indwelling Jesus Christ. And that is the point that the letter makes. Jesus is available to us. He is right here to be our strength, our righteousness, our wisdom, whatever it is we need. And then to be sprinkled by blood, what that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. When Abel's blood was shed, it cried out for vengeance, as the book of Genesis tells us. But Jesus's blood did not speak of vengeance. Vengeance, it speaks of access of vindication of the fact that there is no problem anymore between humanity and God that is not settled by his blood. There is no longer any question of guilt. We can come completely accepted as the beloved. So with all this on our side, there's no need to fail, is there? That's the point that the writer's making. Certainly it gets rough. Certainly it's going to be discouraging. Certainly there are times when the pressures are intense, but have we forgotten the resources? Have we forgotten them? And then finally, these trials come to mark out truth, the demarcation of truth. Picking up chapter 12, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who, were, who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven, at that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So this is the fifth and the last great warning passage in this book, and it reminds us that these difficult times that we go through have a very special purpose. Paul said in his letter to Timothy, perilous times will come in which men will be lovers of self, hateful, truce breakers, and a long list of ugly things. These perilous time come in cycles throughout history and they have a designed purpose they are God's way of showing humanity what is passing and what is permanent God is shaking the earth and the heaven this is not the the final great tribulation he's referring to it is something going on right now God is now shaking the earth and the heaven so have we noticed that the concepts on which people build their security are being tested today as never before and exposed as either true or false. Think of some of the things that we trust in, that humanity trusts in. Well, we trust in the security of, of number. We, we think that if we can get enough people to join our club, then we'll have strength, right? Today, alliances like that are collapsing on every single side. Agreements are merely scraps of paper. No one can trust anything, it seems. We have fake everything. You be the judge of what is true and what is fake, but make no bones about it. Both sides think that the other side is fake. There's no trust. There's, then there's our trust in the power of organization itself. We think that if we can get things sort of systematically organized, we can take care of all of our problems. 
But now we're faced with the, this Frankensteinian monster of big government, which is moving in to dominate more and more of life. It is well organized, but organization has run away with us, and we're afraid of it now. With world government looming on the horizon, it frightens us, but it is simply a revelation of the weakness of our trust in the power of organization. Take the idea of, quote-unquote, the goodness of man. That was once heard. Everybody used to say that, but you don't hear it much anymore. More and more as people are being shaken by what God is doing in the world today, we see violence increasing. The indifference of, of, of humanity to, the, to our neighbor's need is demonstrated here in the United States where we thought that we were so civilized and cultured. We thought we were the best. There's our trust in the, the omnipotence of money. The older we grow, the more we're sure that if we could get enough money, things would be all right. We are taught today to pray our Father, which art in Washington. The result is that we are seeing more emptiness and meaningless in life than we have ever seen before. Money is our Lord. Money, as our Lord reminded us, is never enough. This idea has been shaken so that we will see what will remain. The word to the believer is, let us be grateful receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. For our God is a consuming fire. God is light and God is love. And when we put those two together, we get fire. Fire is both light and warmth. Somebody pointed out fire will destroy what it cannot purify, but it purifies what it cannot destroy. And that's the whole explanation of life in this present day in which we live. We are passing through the fire, which is designed either to destroy that which can be destroyed or to purify that which can never be destroyed. You see, God is leading us through these trials and through the difficulties of our day in order that we may learn to cry with, with old Job back there in the oldest book of the Bible, reading it from the, from the King James Version in honor of my father-in-law. He knoweth the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Amen. And God bless.